0: Welcome to the Particle podcast where we talk about science and the people who just love it. My name is Rose and I was the kind of kid who loved both biology and English lit. Today's guest ticks both those boxes for teenage Rose. I'm delighted to be joined by H.M. War, an environmental scientist turned educator turned writer. We had a chat about mountains, writing and rhino poo. Thank you for joining us, Heather. Oh, thank you for having me. I like your shirt, by the way. For <gasps> thank everyone who can't you. see it, it's
1: covered with awesome wildflowers and cockatoos, and it just rocks.
0: It's very on theme, isn't yeah. it? Well, that brings me to my first question, which is, what do you actually do? I do so many things
1: that um, sometimes uh, my students go, how do you have that many jobs? <laughs> but at the moment, I do a lot. I do a lot of teaching. I um I teach primary school um, extension kids at the moment, and I also teach at the zoo. And I write, of course, I'm an author, so I write. Um, I write science for magazines as well, Um, so science nonfiction. And I volunteer at King's Park. I do a lot of things. You've got Uh, the dream. Yeah, exactly. I am actually living the best life at the moment. Have you always loved science? I I think I have, yeah. And I, I think I've loved it before I knew that what I loved was science because I, um, I loved being out in the bush. And, um, you know, I grew up in New Zealand, so it wasn't really bush there. It's more like forest, I suppose. Um, out on the farm, things like that. And, yeah, I remember a, a teacher, and I can't remember how old I would have been, but he took me through a little bit of remnant forest in our school, um, the whole class, and was starting to teach us about the importance of leaving logs that had fallen down and things like that. And that was when I first started to connect that there was – there was a, a, a life you could, you could do this for your life. you know This was science and this was something you could follow. Um, so that was way back in primary school. And basically I've always had a love of nature and discovering more about it, which is science, really, yeah isn't it
0: it is, and it's funny that you bring up, having had that moment, I was the same. I grew up on a bush block and it was exploring outside that made me wanna do mm. biology, which is what I ended up doing. What is nature like in New Zealand? Do you miss it? Do you miss what it's like over there? I haven't been back in ages, but there's some sort of sigh in your soul when
1: you see, you know, the, the moss and the wetness. And it's just this, it is, um, it's very different. It's very varied as well. Like you get a lot of the tree ferns and the greenness and things like that. Um, but you also get some really stark landscapes in New Zealand as well. Um, but I've been um, to Tassie. So if any listeners have been to Tassie, um, like there's a lot of similarities between Tasmania and New Zealand when you're looking at the bush and things like that. Um, I remember I flew into Australia when I was nine and it was the middle of winter and I kid you not, I looked out the window and I'm like, it is so brown. Oh. What is this place? Whereas now, you know, it took me a long time to fall in love with nature as it looks um, here in Perth uh, with the, you know, the, the starkness, the, the toughness of these plants and these animals that survive in this climate over here. And now I'm absolutely in love with them. But there was a long time where I just thought I want nothing of this in my garden. There's no beauty in this.
0: Because <laughs> it's so dry.
1: Yeah, it, I think it was still like year nine, year ten. I started to go, oh, hang on a minute. Actually, look at this place. Look at how it survives. Why should people care? It's it is a big question, and we teach that as well um, in a lot of our courses that we have. And you you ask it to the students, and they're like, "Oh, we don't know." But there is a selfish side to it. If we can protect the environment, we're part of that environment. We're part of that web that is being held together, um, and we don't understand what holds it together sometimes. So if we can protect that, then we're also protecting ourselves. We're protecting our food sources. We're protecting the future. Um, you know, medical. Um, discoveries we might make and all these sorts of things. But there's also, you know, everything has an intrinsic right to life and there's something so calming for me um, to go out into the bush and to see nature and just immerse yourself in that. I think we as humans, we need that, we need nature. Um, And I think it would be a sad world
0: if if we lost it. When you went on to university, was it environmental science that first grabbed you? Did you know that was what you wanted to do? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so I was doing
1: environmental science and I think I started out with biological science as well and in my second year they brought out a conservation biology so I was able to do both of those together um, but the enviro was the, the main one that I thought would get me a job and the conservation bio was the one that, that spoke to my heart, you know, that's, and that's more of what I'm working on now.
0: And did you enjoy your time at university?
1: I did. Yeah, I was there for three years and then I did my honours outside of uni. And probably I, I loved that even more. Yeah, I, I was working at the WA Herbarium for my oh, honours, but um, like in the dongers out the back um, with the calm science as they were at the time. And that was amazing because suddenly I was in daily contact with people who were doing what I loved. So yeah, that was cool.
0: What was that project?
1: I was studying a critically endangered plant that was up in Eniaba, and it's also in um, Bullsbrook. So it was um, comparing it to other plants, trying to see um, you know, what what made it genetically um, predisposed to being endangered, but also it opened up my eyes to how much we've lost out in the wheat belt and how passionate a lot of people out there are about trying to claw some of that back and, and get some of our nature back out there.
0: For someone who might not know, what are some of the processes in places like the wheat belt that have caused species to decline? The wheat
1: belt is probably the main reason why the southwest of Western Australia is a global biodiversity hotspot, which on first look, it kind of sounds really cool to be a global biodiversity hotspot, and it is, but it also means that we have to have lost at least 70% of our native vegetation to be classed as that. So there's only, I think there's about 35 in the whole world, and we're one of them. Um, So the wheat belts lost um, up to 95% of its vegetation. And I think it it was cleared in a time when we just didn't understand that the soil was not going to stay healthy forever and now it's needing a lot of inputs from um, chemicals and things like that often the only trees you've got left are along the the roads so that Which it was is a, so weird but it was a beautiful forethought to think let's keep these road reserves but as we widen our roads because we're getting more cars then we're starting to lose those trees as well so yeah the wheat belt has lost a lot of its native vegetation and it's I think it's quite important that we start to a protect that and also understand that if we can replant some of that it's actually been found to help the the wheat um, as well. Oh. So you know, if if you can have corridors of trees and get wildlife starting to come back in, they're finding that the soil is healthier and the wind um, is less impacted, uh, impacting on the wheat. So they're actually getting good wheat yields by putting trees back in in places. So it's a win-win, which also helps with climate change because if you can get um, carbon back in the soil, that's one of the best sinks for carbon.
0: Yeah. So we're
1: we're kind of leading the way in places in Western Australia in that. So.
0: Is it something that happens a lot that people are doing the replanting?
1: Um, I haven't been out there like I went through uni a long time ago. I haven't <laughs> been out there um for a while with my kind of scientist hat on. Um I think it was a couple of wildflower seasons ago I went out there. But you certainly are seeing um new plantings coming and you are seeing like if roads are being moved, they're thinking about replanting along the side of that new road, um, so it's not just bare through through you know, through bare fields and things like that. But we've got species like the carnaby's black cockatoo that desperately needs not only really old trees with hollows, but enough food around that really old tree with a hollow for them to be able to raise their chicks. Um, we see them here in Perth, but they don't breed in Perth. They breed in the wheat belt. So oh. they've got like they're being attacked on both sides. We've chopped down a lot of their banksia for forests that they feed on um, when they're not breeding. And then when they go back to try to breed, um, yeah, they no. need a, a combination of things which is getting harder and harder to find in the wheat belt. So... I think, yeah, it's, it's an opportunity being a biodiversity hotspot. It's um, a responsibility, it's also an opportunity, and if we can work together, um, we could make great changes out there.
0: And it could be great for things like tourism and exactly. a sense of place, and there's so mm. many extra good things about it. You said it's been a while since you went there with your science hat on. What, what did you do after that? Where did you keep going?
1: Um, I travelled around the world first oh, off, which amazing. is always, always recommended. Um, and that was really wonderful. I did that when I was about twenty twenty one, And then uh, I worked on mining and construction for about a decade. So I was working in the Jarrah Forest, south of Perth. And then I spent a, a bit of time working up in the Pilbara as well. So that was just amazing. Like I was working where other people have holidays.
0: Oh and that's I think, nice. um,
1: yeah, people just don't understand how amazing it can be to have a job like that. Um, just some of the most magical moments. Um, so yeah, that was about a decade working there. And I um, I still would go up and see the wildflowers and things like that. But um, it was after I uh, was made redundant, my child was born. And that's when I began to have this, this idea of a of a complete rethink of of what I was going to do, and you know, I wasn't going to try to get another mining job and put my daughter in childcare. I was going to decide to to do all these things that little me wanted to do. You know, little me wanted to work at the zoo. Well, come work oh, at the zoo, little me. That's so you know, good. little me wanted to to get a caravan and go around Australia. Well, do that you know, where are our dreams. We shouldn't let them escape.
0: When you went traveling when you were younger and even, you know, traveling throughout your life, do you find yourself wanting to explore nature in other countries? Yes, yeah. I
1: find if I look at too many museums, it's kind of like it all starts to blend together. But if I decide to go on a hike for a couple of hours, then that is something that I will remember. And it's just this moment, this beauty, where you really start to understand what a, you know, what a country is and what its environment looks like. When I travel, I always look for hikes.
0: What does kind of science in WA mean to you?
1: Science in WA to me at the moment is raising the awareness of what we've got because if you ask some children to talk about endangered species they're probably going to tell you about the rhino and the tiger but they won't know about the woolly or the numbat and we've got these amazing creatures right here and this ability to make such an impact so that's what science is kind of meaning to me now is inspiring that next generation telling them what's out there inspiring them to learn more because that's science to me is always that um, love of learning and I just think, like, if, if everyone in Perth planted a tree that would feed a Carnaby's cockatoo, then imagine the difference we'd make. You know, we, we have power when we all start doing one thing, so.
0: Is that something that you thought you'd get into back when you were, you know, at uni the first time? Did you see yourself moving into an educational science communication role? Is that something you already liked? I, um... I
1: liked education. I always thought I would like to be a teacher. Training the um the crews on the mine sites was my favorite well, well, one of my favorite things to do. My favorite was like getting in the car and just going out checking all the stream monitors by myself actually. That was awesome. I don't do that anymore. Technology's oh. taken over and done it for us. Um but yeah, I always loved training and education. But it had been kind of that that talk when I was at school that I had, I had good grades and people with good grades didn't do teaching. Mm. They did something else. It was surprising enough that I wanted to do environmental science. You know, why weren't you trying for something higher kind of thing? And so there was kind of that stigma to teaching. And so it took until um, I'd had my child and she was full time at school with pre-primary. And I thought, I'm going to do my grad dip. Cool. It's just a year. I think it's changed now. It's just a year and I'm going to do this thing that I've always felt I wanted to do. And I'm so happy I did because it's just opened
0: doors to enjoyment, to, to living a life that I'm really proud of. When you were doing Working for the Mines, mm-hmm. I have only really briefly worked in fieldwork. Uh, I worked as a botanist for a, only a few months. So it wasn't mm-hmm. for me. But the fieldwork like, tell me some of the stories about the places you went, or you know, four-wheel driving in the middle of nowhere. What was it like? It's um, I didn't do so much field work because I was actually on the operational side. Okay. So I was
1: organising for clearing and then um, the correct operation of the mine site while it was cleared, and then ah, the rehabilitation afterwards. Cool. So well, you would get people like yourself in to do um, a lot of the the um, monitoring. And sometimes I'd get to go out with them. And, you know, going out in some of the old closed sites up north, just amazing. Um, and because they, you know, they didn't always close them brilliantly. So again, you've got that history. You've got roads leading to nowhere. You've got the leftovers of the, the town they lived in. And down in um, the Jarrah Forest, one of my all peak moments is there is a, a little section of old growth forests just hiding in our mining lease that is completely, Completely protected. We're keeping everything out of it. Oh, I'm still saying a wee because I'm back in that, that feeling of when I was working for them. And it was just the most beautiful place because we go to the Jarrah Forest now, but to go to this little section and see that you could actually literally have driven a cart with horses between the trees, and they were so big. And we don't know why it was kept, um, yeah. but we were always, you know, that was something, that was my job was to make sure we always protected that, and that was a really magical kind of place.
0: So, so many, you know, mines can cause big destruction in mm. the landscape was it never not sad oh
1: yeah always yeah. sad you know when I had to work walk the final clearing line before something would go through and I would just look at, at what was there and all I had to I had to say to myself well I'm here to make sure we put this back yes so people are still going to need this this metal that we're trying to mine That's that's not going to change anytime soon. We need mining. If we could up our recycling, and we wouldn't need so much mining. But at the moment, you know, there is still that need for mining. So I'm going to make sure we do it the best way we possibly can. But yeah, there's that bittersweet moment. You're out there, and the birds are singing, and you know you see a kangaroo in the distance, and it's just so perfect out there. And no one's been there for you know a decade because it's been closed off for the mining. And you think we're bringing. Bulldozers and everything. Yeah, it's coming and in. Your environmental science heart would break a little bit, but then you'd go, I'm going to fix this at yeah. the other side. Yeah. And I know we can. So that, that used to make me positive. And yeah. so
0: it's just so funny that, you know, at school, like we were saying, you know, whether you're too smart to go and do teaching or environmental mm-hmm. science, like it all takes critical thinking and yeah. it's all
1: valuable. And you shouldn't ever be doing something that somebody else expects you to do. Yeah. Do what you want to do. Do yeah. what you're going to love and be passionate about because that's, that's your life.
0: It's your Yeah, yeah it's all you've got. Like. <laughs> and
1: do a 100 things as well, you know. It used to be like do one thing and that's going to be your job forever. How boring. Yeah. I think um, students these days, they don't, don't just have this one path. Try this thing and
0: then when, when something else pops up, grab it. Grab the opportunity. <laughs> Just to jump in with a little bit of extra information, H.M. War's book is called The Lost Stone of Sky City. It's described as being a mountain adventure full of intrigue, friendship and magic. It's aimed at kids 9 to 13 years. You have now gone on to write a book. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about how that happened?
1: I have always loved writing. So it's not like one day I woke up and went, I'm going to write a book. Yeah. I think as a kid, my love of um exploring and, and um, you know, being able to put a name on things out in the environment that became, you know, my love of science was equally my love of worlds and books and fantasy books and things like that. And so I, I, would, I would imagine new stories and then I would imagine new worlds and I'd start writing my own stories. And it kind of died away when I was working too hard and too long. And then um, it just started sneaking back and I'd go to bed at night wanting to sleep and these characters would be in my head. And one day I thought, well, stuff it. I'm going to write them down. Yeah, so it's been about five years I've been on, on that journey where I just thought, this is something I'm going to do because it's a great thing to do, to write for children. Um, I, I really find it quite a, um, a wonderful honour to be able to write for, for children. So, so I think it all stems out of the same love because people who read my books say there's a lot of connection to the environment in it, which I don't even see. But that's, that must be me.
0: When you write a book... I guess did you just sit down and write it or was it something that you you know, you thought about the characters and you had an idea of what would happen and you kinda like mapped it out as you went and then wrote like how does it even how do you write a book?
1: Everyone writes a book differently is what I've figured out. For me, I need to know a character, at least one character and kind of feel who they are. And I need to know basically where they're going and what they're trying to achieve. And I really want to feel the world that they're in. Um, that's, that's a really important thing. So once I can see and feel and taste and smell that world, then I think I'm just going to dive in. And I write very quickly. So I set myself a 50,000 word in a month. And I will just, woo, woo, woo. Every, every night, every moment, I'm, I'm trying to write something down. So it comes out very quickly. And I never reread it until I've got to the other end. And then I could pick up this thing that's awful, which has happened once or (laughs) twice. Or I could pick up this thing that I'm like, this has got a bit, you know, promising. This is good. I could do something with this.
0: Who do you send it to? How does
1: that work? I'm very lucky in that my older sister was already a children's book author. So um, she was a member of a group called the Society for Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, which is also called Squibby, as you can imagine, because it's far too hard to say the other one. And so she was like pestering me. You've got to come join. You've got to come join. And that was actually... I I don't think I would have found them so quickly if I hadn't known about them. And that was so brilliant because they were so supportive and they always have these um, events where you're starting to learn this, you know, where do you go for the next step? What do you do? Um, Which publishers are out there? How do you send to a publisher? Because um, there's all different rules in um, different regions. So, yeah, that was that was amazing. And it was through them that the first page of my book was noticed by a publisher and they contacted Scooby because it was all anonymous and said, whoever's page that was, can they contact me?
0: Where is the book set?
1: My book is set in a mountain world because I love mountains. Um, So it's set nowhere really, but it pulls from all my memories of of mountains. It's a fantasy world, but it's got a lot of um, the Himalayas, a lot of the desert roads sort of region in the centre of um, New Zealand where it kind of, it's dry looking and, and harsh and um, the Andes as well. So I just got all the pictures of cool places I'd been in the mountains and kind of stuck them around myself and um, and used that.
0: That's awesome.
1: Yeah, it was fun.
0: I can imagine how you'd be able to paint that picture. Even just hearing you talk, I can imagine it for me, which is really cool. So have you ever met kids who've read the book?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's weird. It's like, I know who you are. How can you know? I've, I read your book. I'm like, oh,
0: yeah, really? that's so It's sweet. still new because
1: it only came out in October, so yeah. it's still like a new thing for me. One of my PIAC courses is a creative writing course and one of the students actually turned up. She figured out that I was a, an author and she'd found my book and she'd <gasps> bought it and read it. Aww. I was like, oh, if I could give A's, which they don't give in PIAC, I'd give one to you. It's an amazing moment. So I suppose the, the take home is if if you're reading a book and you like it, try to try to put that out there. You know, there's so much negativity in the world, but it's just so... Um, wonderful as an author to hear that someone likes your book. That's so tell people when they've done something cool. That's what I reckon.
0: I've seen a lot that STEM is now being written as STEAM, so mm. incorporating arts. Where do you think arts fit within science? I I kind of
1: think that's um, like it's something that really attracts students to be able to make things you know, with their hands to draw things. I've also um, done art courses myself, so I really love to draw. Um, So I think, you know, if you can combine all of that in the arts as well as history Mm. in in the arts, I think, you know, if you can bring together your science curriculum and your history curriculum and your art curriculum and your maths curriculum and put them all together in one amazing project that your students spend an entire term working on and being absolutely, you know, delving into it and learning everything and being passionate about it. That's amazing. That's that would—that's how I would love to see some of this happening is just combining it all together. They're not in boxes in the real world. I remember in high school, you know, we used to finish our term of chemistry and we'd put away chemistry and we'd pick up physics. And it was, for me, I didn't connect well enough that it's all the same thing. Yeah, and your cell that you're learning in biology, thats that's got all these physics things happening and all these chemistry things happening as well. You know, they're not little boxes everything's joined together
0: and it takes creativity to work through projects when you're in a working environment it takes creativity to be a scientist let's think
1: outside the box what are we going to try here next what might work and also just makes life more exciting yeah and fail keep on failing just get back up again it's great have you failed before oh I think I, I fail all the time but you just kind of think oh yeah wipe that off what did I do wrong yeah try it again as a student teacher you just you know you get the end of a lesson and think oh my lord what did I just do you (laughs) know (laughs) write it down what did I do wrong what am I going to do when I see this class again next time you know that's one of the the biggest things is just to, to sit back at the other end don't beat yourself up over it but how can we do something better next time
0: what are some of the misconceptions that you find either... Now, this can either be about maybe being a writer or about being a scientist or maybe even about yourself being both. What do you think are some of the misconceptions people have?
1: People think that all writers are going to earn money like J.K. Rowling. That's a wonderful misconception. It does not happen. (laughs) (laughs) But basically, um, yeah, I I earn more working a, a day shift than I probably would writing for months and months and months and months because you're just writing for, for nothing you, well not for nothing I write because I enjoy it yeah and I figure I could be doing cross stitch and no one would buy my cross stitch but I'm writing and maybe one day someone will buy my book so
0: and already some kids have yeah, so that's exactly.
1: great so yeah that is a misconception people think that once you've got a book out there then you must be amazing and um I mean obviously I'm amazing <laughs> but I'm I'm certainly not putting down payments on mansions or anything
0: yeah okay Yeah, that's a good point. I've often wondered about that. And what's something that you wish people just knew? Maybe this is about WA science or environmental science, but something you wish people knew, and if they did, things would be a little bit better.
1: I kind of – you drive down the freeway or up – either direction and you get to those suburbs where they've chopped all the trees down and they've got their hot, dark roofs and there's no shade. And I just wish that we started to dig sustainable design a little bit more because we could make our lives so much happier and we could integrate our suburbs with nature. Um, Just by a few tweaks of of housing design, it would make a big difference.
0: What kind of tweaks would you like to see come first? I would love
1: to see um, smaller, Houses, so there's more outdoor area. You know, you want to get your children out there in nature play. And if they don't have a backyard, that's really hard. The front yard where people put their polished green lawn, we don't, we don't need so much of that. No one plays ball in the front yard these days unless you're in one of those really nice cul de sacs. Um, so, yeah, more garden, more nature in the garden, more deciduous trees on the north facing end of your house. <laughs> Just imagine if we didn't have to turn our aircons all the time yeah. because we're naturally cooler because you get global warming you know the climate crisis which is a widespread um, warming or a widespread change of temperatures and change of weather patterns but you also get heat islands in places like cities where it's just an impact of roads and roofs and you know paved surfaces we can make our suburbs much cooler and reduce our water use and our power use if we just planted more trees.
0: And it looks nice. It looks so much better as well. Going to the climate change stuff just for a second, I have noticed like I work with kids as well and I find that they've got quite a strong connection to kind of wanting to make changes for climate change. Mm. Do you find that with the kids that you work with? I don't usually focus so much
1: on it, but when you do raise it, as a topic I, I find that there is that serious risk of, of a loss of hope mm. with some of our, our children uh, because they feel that there is nothing they can do and luckily at, the, at this point in time we're starting to get this, this upwelling of student movement that says hey you can make a difference and there is so much science out there that can make our lives so much better than they are now as well as having way less impact on the environment um, so I think you know, we're all we all should feel empowered to to make a change, and it's not a scary change. It's going to be a positive change. But um, yeah, I, I find there's a lot of worry in me as a mother as well. I've got a lot of worry as the more and more my daughter learns about these things. You know, when you look at them on face value, sometimes it can be a bit of a dark, bleak kind of future. I've stopped writing dystopia, yeah, you know, where the world's all gone wrong, because I think we need hope more than dystopia at the moment.
0: To finish up, I want to ask my favourite part. I say this every single time I record an episode. I love asking people for fun facts. Do you have a science fun fact you'd like to share? I have the fact
1: that probably when I'm presenting, most of the kids love the most. And it's called, well, I call it um, social media for rhinos. So, you know, we've, we've got our social media where we keep in contact with everybody. With rhinos, obviously they don't have phones. They have piles of poo And on their piles of poo, they'll actually come up to it. They'll have a smell of it. They'll walk through it. They'll add their own to it. (laughs) And it helps them to figure out what other rhinos are around there. And their poo piles can get quite enormous. And they'll kind of put them all back together and shake off the other poo off themselves because they don't smell like the other rhinos and wander away. But they've figured out who's in the surroundings
0: i mean, it oh, all. That's such a good fact.
1: Yep, the rhino midden.
0: <laughs> what is in the poo that's me- meaning that they can communicate with each other? Well, their
1: their brains. The biggest part of their brains is the olfactory, is the smell. So they they can just they can tell if it's a male or a female. I presume they can tell if that female might be on heat or you know where have they gone? I don't know. I'm not a rhino, but <laughs> I, d- I do know it's much easier to clean up the rhino enclosures than it is to clean up like the painted dog enclosures. at Yeah. The zoo.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, thank you so much for that. And thank you for joining us today. Oh, no worries. Thanks for having me in. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to the Particle Podcast. Check out more of our content on all of the socials, as well as at particle.scitech.org.au. This episode, as always, was recorded in the wonderful science hub that is Western Australia, and we are proudly powered by Scitech.